Hello, this is Brother Sam Gunn, and I hope you enjoy this new series that we're bringing to you. It's a combined Men and Women of God series for our formation community. We have two tracks of content. There's a men's version and a women's version. So I'll be presenting this, the men's version. I'm going to be addressing men directly, so anyone else is welcome to listen, but I'm going to be speaking as a man to my brothers in Christ. We're starting out with the first chapter that just kind of lays the groundwork of what it means to be a man or a woman in the eyes of God. Now, guys, we love to debate, right? And we all have our opinions, strong opinions, about these issues. But I ask you for an open ear and a genuinely open heart that the things that you hear would inform your opinions. You, at the end of the day, have to make your own decision. You have to form your own mind. But our goal is to present to you in a reasonable, respectful way the Catholic understanding of male and female sexuality and God's great purpose for this in the world today. I look forward to being with you in this chapter. I expect some great conversations will flow from this, not just during your meeting, but at other times as well. I hope it blesses you. It has certainly blessed me. Let's go. Men of God. Chapter 1. What is Man? Boys and Toys Some years ago, Sweden tried requiring boys and girls to play with the same toys. Policymakers called on toy companies to be gender neutral, such that catalogs showed boys playing with baby carriages and girls with trucks. It didn't have the desired effect. As David Geary, a developmental psychologist from University of Missouri, observes, such social engineering doesn't really change the way kids play. He points to his own research, observing a little girl wrap a toy train in a blanket so it can take a nap. Then there's the boy who turns his baby doll into a hammer, bashing it on his blocks. This book is about our identity and destiny as men and women of God. We'll talk about what we share as well as what makes us different. I hope it sparks discussion and a lively exchange of ideas. Most of all, I pray it inspires wonder. It's no secret that Christianity is increasingly countercultural with regards to sex and gender, but our purpose here is not confrontation, it's contemplation. Whenever one stands in the presence of a mystery, it's a much more rewarding approach. Masculinity and femininity are mysteries. Anyone who tells you different is probably selling something. Our plan from the start is to view sexual difference the way we try to view everything God creates, with reverence and awe. That means being open and honest with reality, seeing everything as it truly is, not forcing things to fit our own formulas, preferences, or political agendas. First, a little refresher on what we mean by mystery. It's not a puzzle to solve or a problem to fix, a mystery is an invitation to explore and discover. Everything we learn is ground we gain, but we're never free to say, I got this. There's always so much more to be got. What is the meaning, then, of man and woman? It is among the greatest mysteries in creation. Our modern soundbite culture likes simplistic definitions. It wants to define sex and gender in terms of conflict, Male and female, if, if they even really exist, are adversaries in a great contest for power where the bad guys are, you guessed it, guys. Without denying the societal evil of sexism, we take a very different view based on the book of Genesis. There we learn 
that our relationship as men and women is one of cooperation, not competition. These two positions point to a deeper divide, a growing chasm between Christianity and secular society's understanding of the sexes and the way we relate. Fundamentally, does it come down to opposition or collaboration? Or is there really no such thing as sex at all? The way you decide to see things is your own choice, but no surprise, we'll present the Christian view. We want to strip away popular misunderstandings and stereotypes to propose some important truths of the faith. It's an understanding of reality based on revelation as well as reason. They are not opposed. In the beginning. To know how we got here, we need to look at where we come from. You've heard the story of Adam and Eve, of course, but you've probably also heard people, classmates, professors, even parents, who dismiss Genesis as fiction. Science, we're told, is on the side of reason, while the Bible is mythology and fantasy. Let's test that claim. Instead of starting with faith, we'll consider the science of human origins. We'll do archaeology before we turn to theology. Let's talk about cavemen. What do you think of when you imagine our cave-dwelling ancestors? Ape-like appearance? Carries a club? Drags his cave woman around by her hair? You might be surprised that the scientific evidence paints a very different picture. Here's what we actually know. Many early humans were artists. Though they usually dwelt elsewhere, they left paintings on the walls of caves. Not just stick figures, but vivid images of great bison, bears, bulls, and deer. Pictures that demonstrate remarkable powers of observation, not to mention skill. Here's our point, so obvious we might miss it. No other creature does this. By the way, this is not my original observation. It comes from G.K. Chesterton. Consider the absurdity of an archaeologist exploring caves, hoping to find a primitive image of a man painted by a bull. Only humans demonstrate a deeper sensibility. Only humans reflect on creation such that we take the time to render what we see. There's also an element of ritual in these images. Though we couldn't call them religious in any modern sense, we see evidence of spiritual life, maybe even some awareness of the divine. For example, in the cave paintings of Lascaux, France, there's an area called the Abside, where engravings show signs of spirituality and ritual. This, again, is distinctive to humans. Unlike other creatures, we observe, describe, ritualize, and yes, worship. Now, let's see how this compares with Genesis. Adam describes the animals giving them names. Man is thus presented as an abstract thinker with the ability to identify and categorize, not far from what we find in archaeology. What about artistic renderings? Not mentioned, but certainly not a great leap. What about worship? We certainly see Adam and Eve in relationship with God. We read that the two would walk with the Lord in the garden in the breezy time of the day. In sum, what science tells us about ancient man, based on archaeological evidence, fits better with certain traits described in Adam and Eve, cataloging diverse animals, associating material creation with a spiritual realm, than with the stock character of the caveman. The claim here is not that archaeology and Genesis, in its literal sense, are easily aligned, only that we find more agreement than popularly assumed. 
What about evolution, though? Doesn't the church say we have to believe the creation accounts in the Bible instead? This is another popular assumption with little basis in fact. To believe that God used the process we call evolution to lay the groundwork for the first humans poses no fundamental conflict with Catholic teaching, as all modern popes have attested. But, in line with the Church, we also believe that something unique happened when God bestowed upon Homo sapiens, or the clay of the earth, the gift of a rational nature and an immortal soul, and by doing so made man, male and female. Each soul, yours included, is a direct gift from God. The soul is not the product of this process we call evolution. We read, quote, The teaching authority of the Church does not forbid that research and discussions take place with regard to the doctrine of evolution, in as far as it inquires into the origin of the human body as coming from pre-existent and living matter. But the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. Unquote. This is from Pius XII in Humani Generis. Faith and science, real science, are not so opposed as many seem to believe. Both are ways of knowing truth, and truth is truth, no matter how we know it. Before diving deeper into Genesis, we should settle one more common confusion. The Bible is not a science textbook. It's a book about relationships, divine and human, eternal and temporal, national, covenantal, familial, and more. We can't consider what Genesis says about our beginnings until we put aside this modern science-only bias. If we're hung up on the question of why we find no mention of prehistoric creatures or cavemen, there's a straightforward explanation. That's not what the Bible is about. It's something much more extraordinary. Using finite words and ideas, the Bible tells us about infinite realities. Who we are, where we come from, where we're going, and how we relate to God along the way. Original Unity as Man and Woman Early in Genesis we read, quote, God created man in his image. In the divine image he created him. Male and female he created them. Unquote. There's an eloquent simplicity to this description. We are unified. God made man in his image. Man here can be understood as mankind, emphasizing unity. And yet we are also distinct. Quote, male and female he created them. Unquote. It sets the stage for this dramatic tension, for unity and diversity in our identity and purpose as man and woman. God looked with delight upon his first son and daughter, bestowing his blessing. Quote, Behold, it was very good. Unquote. God sees goodness in our equality, in our sameness. God also sees goodness in our diversity, in our differentness. Is this a contradiction? No, but here's the issue. There can be a tendency among men to use truth mainly as a tool for winning arguments. A man like this is impatient with mystery. He wants answers. Reality for him has to fit into neat either-or categories. On the other hand, the man who sees truth as an invitation to contemplation learns the balance of both and. Many mysteries of the faith call for this skill, holding truths together when they seem opposed. Examples would be the Holy Trinity as one and three, or the both-and balance of justice and mercy, or again, faith and reason. Such is the mystery of man and woman, 
of being both same and different. Here's the way the Catechism lays it out. Quote, Men and woman have been created, which is to say willed by God, on the one hand in perfect equality as human persons, on the other in their respective beings as man and woman. Being man, or being woman, is a reality which is good and willed by God. Man and woman possess an inalienable dignity which comes to them immediately from God their Creator. Man and woman are both with one and the same dignity in the image of God. In their being man and being woman, they reflect the Creator's wisdom and goodness. Unquote. Consider the similarity. What do we share as women and men? Beginning with the basics, we eat the same kinds of food, live in the same habitats, and share many of the same physiological traits. We are able, for example, to transfuse each other's blood. Again, what we find in Genesis tracks well with science. Adam perceives in Eve a fundamental similarity with himself. Quote, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Unquote. Behind such brevity, there is also great gravity. St. John Paul II wrote extensively about this moment of mutual recognition, noting that the phrase, quote, bone of my bone, unquote, is more than biological. It's a statement about being. In other words, not only do we share physical characteristics, but something much deeper. We are both persons, beings in relationship, who can give and receive love in a way that reflects our Creator. As human persons, man and woman share a capacity for reason, moral judgment, and interpersonal communion unlike any other animal. When we love, it goes beyond desire, affection, or even attachment. We have the unique power to make a gift of ourselves forming lasting bonds and freedom, not compelled by instinct. Our nature is immortal, meaning that we look beyond life and contemplate the meaning of death. We are drawn to transcendent realities that are not limited to time and space. We respond with appreciation and wonder to truth, beauty, and goodness. Monkeys don't write books about death. Cows don't contemplate beauty. We're back to the fundamentally different relationship humans have with the world around us and the one who made us. All this and more we share as man and woman. Consider the difference. From conception, humans are distinctly either male or female. Though the embryo takes some weeks to sort this out, our chromosomes are present from the beginning. In other words, we are not unsexed to start out as if it might go either way. From the earliest stage of our development in the womb, our sex is written into our beings. We are irreducibly male and female. There is also no sense in which we are incomplete or half-humans because we are not united with someone of the opposite sex. Sometimes people deny sexual difference by pointing out instances of babies who are born with mixed biological sex, a condition called intersex. This trait is very rare. And to claim it disproves sex and gender is like saying babies born without the ability to distinguish between red and green disproves the existence of red and green. Another objection you might hear goes something like this. Apart from having babies, there is no real difference between a woman and a man. We see this in the confusion of the surrounding culture. On the one side, it denies difference in all but the most obvious aspects of our sexuality. On the other, it treats difference as an unbridgeable gap where men and women are told we can't possibly understand each other. Which is it? 
So yeah, guys, this is not news. Our bodies are different. What might be news, especially if you've imbibed what the culture keeps pumping out, is that sexual difference goes way beyond skin deep. Men and women think, feel, and relate differently. Can I get an amen? Though somebody in the group will Google a study to the contrary, the majority of scientific evidence over the past 25 years backs this up. Only the most politically correct parents will be unable to distinguish between the ways that little girls and boys play, communicate, and resolve conflict. Sex is a blessing willed by God. It is much more than body parts or physical functions. Therefore, we work hard to embrace our sexuality even though we often struggle with this. The Catechism says, quote, Everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented towards the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends, in part, on the way in which the complementarity, needs, and mutual support between the sexes are lived out." Unquote. Why did God make us different? We gain ground when we consider this word from the Catechism, complementarity. It means mutually fulfilling what the other lacks. In other words, sexual difference is God's original diversity. In our cooperation, we learn shared support, care, and commitment. We practice interdependence in the roles of motherhood and fatherhood. We serve family life not only as biological parents, but in roles of teaching, healing, conservation, and governance that provide for future generations. In short, we cooperate in response to God's original blessing, be fruitful and multiply. When we consider our difference, we find ourselves again standing before a great mystery. We may laugh or cry about the many inconsistencies, quirks, and oddities of the opposite sex, and by the way, they feel the same about us, but we always come back to awe. God has done a wonderful thing in making us man and woman. Our conflicts and divisions, we note, don't come from God. They are of our own making. Returning to Genesis, we see that man and woman together abused our freedom and defaced God's original intent. Divided by sin, united by grace. There's a tragic familiarity to the dreadful decision by humanity's first father and mother to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. When we wonder how we got where we find ourselves today, why women and men are so often trapped in harmful relational patterns that feed the worst of our destructive tendencies, we discover in the Bible a rich source of insight. More importantly, we find renewed direction and vision. Our differences can lead to conflict, it's true. But the difficulties we face in our relationships as women and men also make the call to unity all the more striking. We come from one source in God, and we return again to God in the end. In the interim, we are helpers to each other. Our diversity is at the service of our unity. What does this mean? Jesus gives us further insight on the Father's original intent. Responding to a question about divorce, Jesus affirms the foundational plan for man and woman. Quote, have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Unquote. The purpose of sexual difference, Jesus explains, is marital union, a lifelong unbreakable bond of husband and wife. 
This sparks a reaction not only from his enemies, but even from his followers. We can imagine their minds exploding, like ours do, with real-life examples that don't seem to fit the mold. What about? What about? Or, or, or what about? So many exceptions are swept aside by this seemingly uncompromising position. Pressed by his own disciples, it's better not to marry, they object, Jesus doesn't back down but opens up a surprising new possibility. He continues, quote, Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Some because they were made so by others. Some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, unquote. One might think he adds these as concessions to what otherwise sounds like a universal mandate for marriage. Instead, we find in his final words an unexpected invitation, quote, whoever can accept this ought to accept it, unquote. What do we see in this? Marriage remains the normative pattern for man and woman, but Jesus offers another way as well. Not all can marry, he acknowledges, whether because they are born that way or because something in their life experience makes them that way. To these he adds a third non-marrying category, those for whom the decision is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The closing words, those who can, should, have been understood by Christians over the centuries to point to something beyond marriage, namely, the possibility of embracing single life sacrificially or by vows, living a celibate life as a deeper expression of baptism and a closer following of Jesus himself, who never married. Again, those who can, should. Great stuff, but it's a topic for another time. Back to being men and women. What we learn from Jesus is that as man and woman, we come from God and we are going to God. What is our work as men and women? To unify rather than to divide. To restore rather than destroy. Collaborate rather than compete. In short, we work together in cooperation with our Creator to care for our world, to care for each other, and to bring new life into being for the glory of God. In the end, our call is to help each other along the way that leads back to God. Simple, yes. Easy, no. What is man? Two views. Growing up in suburbia, I thought I knew what stars looked like. That changed one summer when I was camping on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Far from city lights, I saw for the first time a night sky so crowded with constellations it froze me in my tracks. This while returning to my tent from a bathroom run. Small and silent, I stood transfixed beneath the vast, splendid canopy thinking, Who am I? The way a man looks at the stars says a lot about the way he sees himself. Contemplating the cosmos is like looking in a mirror. What we see out there is really a reflection on what we see within. As before, I'll offer two views, one secular and the other spiritual. Stephen Hawking, among the greatest astrophysicists of modern times, spent his lifetime studying space. He had this to say, quote, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. That would be like saying that you would disappear if I closed my eyes. Unquote. The spiritual view comes to us from the 8th Psalm. 
It's a very different take on our place in the universe drawn from another time. Three thousand years ago, a man stood in awe under heaven's majesty and observed, quote, When I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you arranged, what is man that you should keep him in mind, mortal man that you care for him? Unquote. Unlike some modern scientists who see only their own insignificance, the psalmist looks beyond that to something extraordinary. For him, the starry night is not a cold, indifferent emptiness. That's why he continues, quote, Yet you have made him, man, little less than a god. With glory and honor you crowned him, gave him power over the works of your hand, put all things under his feet, unquote. Quietly Poking Holes Which view will you choose? Will you look at everything God has made and conclude that it is meaningless? Will you laugh at the absurdity of it all and try to believe that we are nothing more than chemical scum? Or will you see something else in this mirror, something that calls forth the very best a man has to give? There's something conspiratorial in all this. Standing in the presence of mystery, appreciating creation and the wonder of womanhood and manhood, we are quietly poking holes in the low ceiling of modernity. Heaven's light begins to shine through, showing us a way forward as companions, not competitors. That sense of a higher call stirs us. Can you feel it? We want to achieve some worthy goal, some honorable destiny as man and woman. In the presence of so noble a father, we become aware of our own nobility. What is man, male and female, that you think of us, that you keep us in mind? The Father will reveal this to us and so much more. He will reveal to our sisters what it is to be his daughters. He will show us men what it means to be sons. This begins, brothers, with our bodies, something near and dear to every man.